Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. On today's show, I'm joined by a special guest, best-selling author, five-time entrepreneur, and financial expert, Garrett Gunderson. Garrett's the founder of Wealth Factory, an Inc. 500 company that educates entrepreneurs on effective ways to grow cash flow, plug financial leaks, and reach economic independence. He's a New York Times best-selling author, having written nine books, including Killing Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths That Are Destroying Your Prosperity, as well as What Would the Rockefellers Do?, how the wealthy get and stay that way, and how you can too. This October, he released his newest book, Money Unmasks, Unlearn, Unlock, and Take Back Control of Your Finances and Life. Whether in writing or speaking engagements, Garrett uses a unique blend of humor and financial education. With a passion for helping people understand how to keep more of what they make without cutting back, he uses his comedic talents to deliver financial advice in a way that's both entertaining and informative. Garrett, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I sure appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, same here. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, looking forward to the topic. It's not often that someone can bring comedy to finances. Uh, most people look at it as a scary or a dry topic, yeah. but looking forward to that. Looking forward to talking about uh, Wealth Factory and looking also looking yeah. to talk about the new book that you have uh, you have going on. When you think about it, like all these comedians talk politics because there's a lot of opinion around politics. They just don't talk money because they don't know enough about it or yeah. if they are doing really well with it they're not really feeling like that should be part of their brand <laughs> is talking about it yeah. but they just don't know enough but there's a lot funny about money when you think about it especially the way people behave because of it or around it or the confusion that comes with it and you yeah. know it, it's it's kind of fun to to laugh at money's expense for a change. probably also uh, on the comedy front probably also separates you from most comedians who hey look i'm not the funniest comedian on the planet (laughs) by any means but i'm probably the funniest money comedian on the (laughs) planet because there's not there's not really anyone else so that's great so we'll get into that but first i want to talk about the the book and i know you've written uh, other books but what why this book yeah of all the books i've written this has been the most impactful on me i wrote it there's no co-author on this book this book is really seven years in the making, writing and rewriting and writing too much and refining and pulling it back. But what I always wanted was I wanted someone else to do the work and tell me my money persona. Like, what is it that, you know, for me, for other people, but I never really found one that I was like, yeah, that, that nails it. So it, in 2008, when I started thinking about that, that's where the journey kind of began. And it was more researching and understanding how people operate with money. What's their subconscious beliefs? What are the kind of things that govern either their success or failure? And that was the, really the precursor of this book is understanding those money personas. Because money unmasked is about our relationship to money is our relationship to ourselves. And if we don't understand why we have these thought processes and frameworks and and even bad philosophies around money, hard work with the wrong philosophy can lead to devastation or destruction or bankruptcy even. After writing Killing Sacred Cows long ago, I was like, well, where are these beliefs coming from? And why does the scarcity have such a stronghold? And ultimately, how do we heal from that? And that's where these money personas really were born. And so I think that this book has a little bit more emotion than my other books. A lot of my other books feel really academic, but it also has that pragmatism 
that a book like What Would the Rockefellers Do has, which is here's specific steps you could take to recover time or to recover cash or profit from your ideas up front. But before we ever get to that, what are the things that move you towards scarcity or abundance specifically? And what are the money personas that you aren't so you learn how to collaborate and connect with other people so that you can actually speak and live wealthy? I feel like wealth is a language and there's most people are in this language of victimhood. They're in this language of, of scarcity. They don't even know. It's like these, this spell that's cast over them. And it's partially because they don't understand their money persona and they don't understand the elements that push them into the shadow side of that persona. But once it's recognized and there's awareness, they can make different choices. And those choices lead to a much better life along the way, not just one day, someday in the future, like retirement. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've kind of learned working in finance is that, you know, I used to think it's all about the quantitative aspect of it, all about analytics and numbers and doing this and doing that. But it's really just as much, if not more, about your emotions, your beliefs, your behaviors, and really getting a handle on that is really can what you need to, or at least one of the things that's it's really important to set you up for success. During your research for the book, what are some of the things that you found out about beliefs and persona and how someone can get a better handle on it? I even looked at my own life where I was like, hey, been 10 years in business. I started in 98. So now it was 2008. I was over leveraged with real estate. I was distracted by having too many things on my plate. And for some reason, I was in this belief that if I just sacrifice and more is better and one day, someday it'll all get and I was like, what, what are my belief systems? Why, what led me to this place where I'm doing things that I don't love to do that was only in the name of money and I'm following so-called gurus that are actually having me take risk because it's not really what I wanted to be up to. So that was kind of the moment of reality and clarity that came to me that, that led towards this. And what I discovered is first off, my wife is a conservative slash planner, which is one of the money personas. Shadow side's conservative, which is all about accumulation. It's about delayed gratification, and it's all about the future, but never enjoying the present, where the planner's about being stable, thoughtful, and strategic, and about how to be more efficient and effective and plan for contingencies. So I looked at her as hesitant and overly analytical and always pumping the brakes. And I, on the other hand, was this striver creator so the striver always thinks you can just work harder and make more money, but they probably burn out and was more about status than actual quality of life. On the other side, the creator is really good at initiating things and leading with innovation and ingenuity. So once I understood her money persona, instead of looking at it as a battle, I liked it as her as how could she start to illuminate the best path, ask the questions I didn't ask, do some of the fact finding that I didn't want to do. But for me, I was great because I was initiating things that she would have never thought about or she would have never discovered. So all of a sudden, we became a team and a unit where we could work in lockstep and move forward in a much better way, which meant we stopped fighting about money. We stopped arguing because we understood what each other's strengths were, and we started to use that as a way to work as a cohesive unit. So that was a game changer for me. And I thought, well, I can't just keep that information to myself. Let's dive deeper. Let's start researching. Let's talk to thousands of people and see how they operate and what makes them operate that way and where this all comes from. So it was pretty enlightening that when it really comes down to it, when people get into isolation, fear, scarcity, worry, all of that emotion, they usually get to a place where they become unintentionally selfish in the name of preservation and protection. And they actually push other people away because they're so focused on scrimping, saving, and sacrificing that they miss out on production. Because no one shrinks their way to wealth. Wealth is a game of value creation. And when we start to lose sight of value creation and we believe in a zero-sum game, that puts us to our shadow persona. 
But if we look at the game as something that's collaborative and that's co-creation and it's about delegation, and it's about doing what we do best, and it's about finding what our path is, we start investing more in ourselves. We start adding more value and money follows value. So it starts to unlock this game of wealth. And ultimately what I learned is if we know what our money persona is, embrace the winning persona, illuminate the shadow persona so that we can avoid some of the missteps and mistakes, then we just enjoy life more along the way. And we're not just trying to get somewhere. We actually look at the moment as worthwhile. Most of the, the, the world is kind of pushing moments away into the future and missing out on the experience along the way because they're so addicted to just trying to build net worth at the expense of quality of life. But what if we looked at it from a more abundant standpoint and said wealth is a byproduct of a life well lived and it's not just net worth, but it's experiences and it's enjoyment and it's the energy we have from that and we treat ourselves as the greatest asset pour more enjoyment into our life and look for fulfillment, not just in retirement, but along the way, that changes the entire game. You mentioned creator, planner. How many other money personas are there? So the first one is the miser, which plays the game called preservation. People get upset when they take the quiz and they go, oh, crap, I'm a miser. But I also came from a family of misers. My great-grandfather was a coal miner. My grandfathers were coal miners. There was strikes that would happen. There were times where the mines were shut down. That lack of stability created a place where they tried to hold on to all that they could. They double coupon clipped. They knew where the cheapest gas was. They had food storage. There was all this stuff that kind of had them be weary, which to a planning standpoint could be helpful, but from a mindset standpoint where it's always about what you could lose and avoiding that, it gets to a place where there's limited growth. So on the flip side, that was the mindful manager. The winning persona is detail-oriented. They're efficient. They're great at improving things. They're instrumental for organizations that are looking to you know, enhance ideas and reduce waste. So it's really a perspective of if you're a mindful manager, you're co-creating, you're delegating, you're collaborating. If you're a miser, you're isolating, you're in scarcity, you're reducing. So the second one is the conservative planner that I mentioned. The conservative plays the game called accumulation. They end up with funds that they can't spend because they're always trying to save for the future, you know, where the planner is just stable, thoughtful, and strategic. And they're monitoring the effectiveness and efficiency of things, and they plan for contingencies. It's very helpful. The striver just thinks they can work harder to make more because they're addicted to status. So it's all about how much can they get? How much can they amass? But the problem is they burn out because working harder and sacrificing, eventually that hustle and that grind becomes exhausting. And so is it's exhausting for the people around them. On the flip side, though, the winning persona of co-creation, delegation, and collaboration is the creator, an entrepreneur, an inventor, an artist. You know, and they lead with innovation and ingenuity and they create new ways for value to experience. And then the final one is the high roller, which plays a game called opportunity, but likely ends up bankrupt because they take on too much risk and don't pay attention to the details. But on the flip side is the catalyst, a, a visionary, a mover and shaker or a connector. They, they think and play really big and show us ways we can all win together. So that's a very quick rendition of the money personas. There's the shadow of the miser, conservative, striver and high roller, the winning of the mindful manager, planner, creator and catalyst. So it's that line of demarcation of what's your perspective, where's your focus, and how do you show up and operate in the world? Are you in fear or are you in value? Are you in preservation or are you in creating perpetual wealth? It's a little different viewpoint. So I guess the exercise is this self-looking at, but it has a little complexity when you bring your spouse in. Have you ever seen a scenario where both were the same money persona? 
Yeah, it's it's rare. It's it's not as common, but it does happen. You know, sometimes you hear about power couples. That's usually two strivers. <laughs> but I think the universe kind of plays this sick joke on us where we always find a money persona different than us the majority of the time because there's something we could learn from them. But yeah, it, it does happen. Like I've seen two misers together and, you know, they are probably the best in the world at saving money. But at the same time, they don't value their time enough. So, you know, I would say that oh, well over three-fourths of the time using loose percentages, three-fourths of the time, it's a different money persona. And so who's the main audience for the book? Is it basically anyone that wants to improve? Is it someone that's feeling stressed or has a specific problem that they think it may help with? You know, I think that the people that are going to love the book the most, if I were to be really candid about it, are people that have checked the box in life and they're not as fulfilled as they want to be. People that are maybe in their 40s or 50s and they have some level of success, they have some level of momentum, but at the same time, they're like, is this all that life has to offer? That's going to be the majority of people that really benefit from the book because it'll speak to them. I think someone in their 20s will be getting a lot of value understanding their money persona, but they might not quite understand the value of designing a game worth playing and going for it. Because you know, once someone's lost money for the first time, or once someone has has found that they're disenchanted in their career and they've had a little bit of time, they start listening a little bit better. When someone hasn't experienced much, the experience is often the teacher. And then finally, they go through some of the experience. They're like, well, maybe I'd like to learn in a different way than just through pain. So I think that you know, 40 to 60-year-olds are going to resonate the most. People that are already retired, it might help them think about re-entering the world of value creation and not just staying retired, but they're probably going to be most, most resistant to the concepts because maybe defending the choices they've made to this point. But I do think it's helpful for anyone that's willing to read it because knowing our money persona is a game changer. And in the end, the book's really about, everybody has this question about, do you like me now? And am I lovable? And when we're chasing money at the expense of love, thinking that it's an either or, Really, I'm saying that money is just a byproduct of value. So the more we love ourselves, the more we honor who we are. Wealth might mean that we live this quality of life, even if we don't have quite as much money. Look, if I just stayed in the world of I just kept working at Wealth Factory and being the, you know, the majority owner there, it just wasn't as fulfilling as me doing comedy or writing books or using entertainment to educate. So there was a season for me in that organization. And I might have more money right now if I just stayed in that organization doing what I was doing. But at the same time, it just had run its course and wasn't quite as fulfilling. So I make this pivot to do comedy, to educate, to do a theatrical keynote, to write a children's book because I want to use entertainment to educate. And it feels like it speaks to my soul a little bit more. Wealth doesn't always mean the most money. Wealth means often the most fulfillment. Now, you could be completely rich with money. And not all that happy. I think it's a lot easier to be happy with money than without. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, it's not a guarantee. A lot of money doesn't guarantee happiness, especially if it was earned in a way that you're no longer enjoying and you feel stuck in that world or stuck in that career. One of the, the topics in the book is about a cycle of creation. Can you kind of explain a little bit about what that is and how someone can learn to leverage that? This is the most popular chapter in the book when we were doing advanced reader groups and getting feedback because the concept is without having to borrow money, without having to invest up front, how can you profit from your ideas from day one? And it's a concept of how do you win before you play? And so you could take an idea, like this happens all the time. I pay for concerts, I pay for comedians, uh, you know, I pay for 
sporting events before I know what the outcome is going to be or how good it is, which means they've profited from it before they've even shown up. So the cycle of creation is how do you profit from your ideas up front so you build momentum using both mental capital, which is your ideas, and relationship capital, which is people that know you, so that you can start to benefit them and that they, instead of borrowing money, it funds everything that you're up to. They did this with the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty came over from France and it was just laying on its side in the Hudson. So what they did is they just went for like less than an average of a dollar per citizen that said, I want to be on a brick. I want to help build the base platform for it. And I want to be the first person that goes to, to see it. So they donated money that ended up allowing them to erect that and have a, have a place for it. So that was a very win-then-play concept. I pre-sold 22,000 copies of my first book, Killing Sacred Cows, before it came out. So I was already winning. I already used the cycle of creation to say, I'll give you these bonuses. I'll, I'll give you things I pre-sold. So it was already profitable from day one. Where most people, if they scramble to try to build something, they don't get feedback along the way. And then they exhaust all their resources. And then it comes out and, and people are like, well, I don't know if I want that. I like my, my uh, one of my mentors, Dan Sullivan, says, test your ideas on check writers. So you actually have people pay for the thing. And instead of having debtors, you have customers. We've seen this with crowdsourcing in tons of ways, right? Products that get funded by the very people that want to use the product instead of by investors. And you get a lot of micro donations or micro contributions instead of one large investor, which now means you don't owe money. You just owe the product to the very people that wanted it. And the cycle of creation goes from idea, which is something in our mind, to a concept, which is something shared using mental and relationship capital to get there, and then eventually a framework where we can delegate and offload so that it becomes a customer experience or product or some type of service. And when we can profit from that along the cycle before it's done, we get that money up front so that we can build something even better, but it takes a high degree of integrity and a process called pre-selling. So that, that chapter is pretty fascinating because I did it with the first video course I ever created, the first book I ever created. I don't always use the cycle of creation as far as pre-selling and making the money up front. Sometimes I just do it over time and I have it in different phases because sometimes it can be really complicated to, to start something and get paid and have these timelines with it. Sometimes I like to have a little bit more flexibility, but you know, we've done it with video courses and we've done it with books and, and things like that. And we see people do that out there in the world all the time. What, um, what inspired you to create Wealth Factory? So I had this firm called Ingenuity back in the year 2000. I had started selling life insurance and mutual funds in 98 and 99. And it went really well because the stock market went well. I didn't know what I was doing, but the stock market went up in 98 and 99. So I seemed like I was really intelligent. And then the market started to go down in 2000. And all of a sudden, all my friends and family and their parents that cashed out double E bonds were like, hey, wait, wait, those never lost. Why, why is the, the accounts going in the wrong direction? And so I decided to really dedicate myself to figure out how to, where, where could there be a higher degree of guarantee to help people with money? And what I came up with was if I help them be efficient, save tax, save interest, save non-performing fees and structure insurances properly so there's not duplicate coverages or inefficiencies. As I went through that, I started meeting these young guys that were really inspiring. They're asking a lot of questions. So we formed a firm called Ingenuity. And it was kind of this intellectual partnership. We came together because we would do study groups and we built a brand together, but we all kind of had our own book of business and our own clients. But what it did is it, it felt more collaborative and it felt like we were, we could learn from each other and challenge each other. We started doing events together and we started to do these monthly memberships that people paid for and they could come in person and they get daily emails with little quotes and they could get audios where we'd interview great people. And, and so it was a, a really cool learning environment. 
And then my two partners died in a plane crash. Oh, wow. And, and at that point, I was like, well, I tried to work it the way it was with our three offices without them, but they were big personalities and it wasn't really, it wasn't really going that well. So I said, look, I'm going to take this program and I'm going to make it my own. I'm going to call it Freedom Fast Track. And that was, I ended up calling the company Freedom Fast Track because our company Ingenuity was now two of them were dead. So the, the flagship program was, let's take this concept of the old school family office, right? Where you'd have a family that had a financial team just for them. Well, let's make that available in a kind of a, in a fractional way or in a virtual way so that it's not just one family having one financial firm, but we could have an attorney that could represent 100 families or we could have an accountant that could represent 100 families that these were people that didn't have enough money, right? They might make a million dollars of revenue, but they definitely couldn't afford to have it. That would be more than the financial team would cost too much. So, right. so I started to build that. And then what I realized is it was very labor intensive and it wasn't very scalable. And there was this, this company called Elevation Group that had sold 50,000 online education programs around finance. They had this platform that people could pay and they could hear all these interviews. And this guy, Mike, would say, hey, watch me on my wealth journey. I'll interview attorneys and I'll interview you know, real estate people. And so he kind of got in a place where he was not able to really do that anymore because there had been a loss with one of the with some of the people that, that watched one of these videos and it was some scam thing. So he 